Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, welcoming you to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and healthcare. As regular listeners know, we enjoy learning about osteopathic medical education programs on the podcast, and we've taken kind of a national tour in recent months with stops in Buffalo, Orlando, and Des Moines. Today's episode takes us to New York City, where Touro College of Osteopathic Medicine has its main campus in central Harlem. Our guide to learning more about what the program offers and to give us a report from the front lines of medicine and medical education is Dr. Michael Fodi, a clinical assistant professor of internal medicine at Toro University and coordinator of the standardized patient program. Dr. Fodi's primary interest is in academic medicine, so we'll be double-clicking on that topic. And we'll also talk to him about his interest in the current mental health challenges of healthcare providers, among other topics. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Fodi. Thank you. We'd like to start with learning more about our guests, and in your case, what got you interested in medicine and then osteopathic medicine? Yes, definitely. Medicine itself, I've I've been interested in kind of all my life. You know, it's funny. My grandmother always tells a story of, you know, when I was five years old, and you know, my brother had the chicken pox, and we walked out the doctor's office, and I was like, "Hey, I want to be that. I want to be a doctor." So that that's been a constant my whole life. I think that once I started applying to medical schools out of undergrad is where I started learning more about osteopathic medicine itself at the advising of my pre-health advisor, you know, I shadowed osteopathic physician and, you know, I really, you know, you know, when I was an undergrad, I always, and even to this day, I have to understand concepts, you know, I've, I can't just memorize things. And when I was reading about, you know, what osteopathy meant and the treatment and, you know, using the musculoskeletal system to treat not just the musculoskeletal system, but everything else, you know, all the other organ systems. And they really go down to the the basic physiology and and how it works. And and that really spoke to me. I was like, wow, I really understand that. That's really interesting. You have that extra tool, you know, and then the philosophy spoke to me, you know, the body's tendency to heal itself, approaching our patient care with mind, body, and spirit in mind. All of that really spoke to me. And, you know, and once I started, you know, at uh, NYIT comp, I knew that, you know, I made the right decision for sure. Do you remember a particular moment where you were like, oh, yeah, this is a good fit for me? Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was week one. I mean, once I when the, was at the OMM lab and, and they were talking about, you know, osteopathic medicine and what we were going to be doing, I was like, wow. You know, I knew all the other medicine I was going to need to learn. But once I was in there and they, they were talking about, kind of what the semester ahead was. I was like, wow, this is cool. I, I'm, I'm definitely in the right place. Your five-year-old self was very prescient, it sounds like. <laughs> I guess so, yes. <laughs> so what would you like our audience to know about the program at Turo and particularly what you think might set it apart? Yes, it, it's a fantastic program. I think one thing that stood out to me from day one that I started here, uh, you know, I walked the halls to kind of, you know, just get a feel of, of the campus and, and meet everyone. And, and one thing that really stood out to me was that almost every faculty member's office had a student or students in their office speaking to them, whether they were reviewing topics or just chatting. There was just this great camaraderie of the students and the faculty together. You know, and I've, and I've just never seen that before, really. And it was and it, the, the student presence and faculty presence on campus and all of that. I was like, wow, you know, I hope one day that'll be me here at Toro, you know, having students in my office and just chatting or talking about career advice, you know, advising, you know, it, 
that really spoke to me. And that's something that now fast forward, you know, seven months later, I can tell you it's, you know, that was reaffirmed that students are in my office all the time. If you see my wall here in my office, it's full of pictures with my students. I mean, they're, they're phenomenal there. And that's the other part of Toro. They're so engaged. They're so motivated such a desire to learn from us and spend extra time outside of the classroom to learn and whether it be career advice or just what they're learning that day, you know, it's, it's, it's really stood out to me every day and it's been phenomenal. And on the curricular side of things, what would you like to highlight? Yeah, for sure. I think that Toro is one of, I think, a unique set of institutions that are really advanced in terms of the medical education trends that are out there right now. We've really taken a hold of the flipped classroom model and self-directed learning, understanding that all students learn in their own unique way, and also understanding that to really have the students grasp a lot of these concepts, right, these high-yield concepts, a big part of that is having them be engaged in the classroom. Do the learning before in terms of the basics that you need to grasp these high yield concepts, right? That basic fund of knowledge you need. So watch these recorded lectures, read these texts, come in, and now let's discuss them with a the faculty member who's, you know, really advanced in, in their field, who can really engage the students in that. I think it's a fantastic model. It's one of the newer trends in medical education that I was always researching before I came to Toro. And then once I got here, it was a plus. I was like, wow, this is great because I think this is what we should be doing everywhere in education. So I think that sets us apart from a curricular standpoint too. And you know, what a different task for the instructor in that setting. Instead of being the sage on the stage and lecturing and you know, that kind of thing, that sort of interaction, small group learning. I mean, so how do you pick up those skills and, and how are you finding that work? Yeah, I think actually in a way it takes a, a bit of the pressure off the faculty, right? Because now that takes away having to lecture for an hour, right? And keep the students trying to engage the students, which is I think kind of like where it has been a misstep for so many years for an hour, just sitting there speaking, expecting the students just to just absorb all of these high yield concepts. And instead, you know, as a faculty member, you're doing less talking because now you're engaging with the students, right? And you're really going back and forth and having a discussion. You know, it, it it's actually, in my opinion, I've, the faculty seem so engaged and they really seem to love this model of learning. And I think that's why it's become such a hot topic kind of trend in medical education. Yeah. And less performative and more, you know, on the ground in the mix approach. That's exactly Which right. I would think would be kind of energizing in a way for faculty. That's, I, that's the perfect word to use. Yeah. Because like I said, you're more engaged yourself, right? Instead of having, oh, now for the next 50 minutes, I have to stand here and just talk right? Now it's a back and forth discussion. And that's how you can really also gauge as a faculty member, are my students understanding these high yield topics, right? So that's the best way to gauge it. There's no way to really gauge that besides exams to say, oh, after these, how many lectures now are they ready? Now in that moment, you're seeing, are my students ready for this, right? And if not, they, as the students, can also recognize that, right? Because now they have to be engaged. They have to participate in high-yield questions for an hour or two hours or three hours, right? And they're now determining, hey, instead of right before the exam or a couple of weeks before the exam, in that moment, in that topic, wow, I need to go back and review this again, right? Because now they're they're engaged in that respect as well. So it's on both sides of it. Yeah. Empowered. Well, and you can catch problems earlier. And, you know, instead of finding out after the first set of tests that 
people aren't getting it, maybe that would emerge in these conversations in the class. That's exactly right. Yes. Well, that's great. Almost makes me want to go back to school, but not quite. <laughs> so I noted that you help oversee the standardized patient program and wanted you to help people understand what that's about, what critical role they play in medical education, just generally speaking, but also help us understand how you guys use them, particularly at Turo. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's the major reason why I came to Toro is be able to run this program. And it's because as a student, you know, so standardized patient programs are relatively new in medical education. You know, if you if you go back, you know, 20, 30 years, they didn't have this these type of programs, right? But I myself as a student did have that, right? And I for me, maybe you can't tell this now, but I was a very shy student in the beginning and I and I had a lot of stress and angst over those standardized patient encounters. And I'll explain what they are in a moment. But my standardized patient encounters myself are what prepared me to develop those interpersonal communication skills to be a physician in that respect, in terms of building the trust, building the rapport with my patients. So to explain to the viewers, standardized patients are trained actors who simulate a clinical scenario, right? So they simulate what the patient experience would be. In most respects, it's actually a medical student's first patient, so to speak, right? So in that respect, it allows the student to twofold, really. A, they can practice their clinical skills, right? So their history, taking their physical examination, discussing a plan, right? but also their interpersonal communication skills. And I believe all of our students have that innate ability to display empathy, to display compassion, to really connect with our patients, but it does take time to really hone those skills because as a student, you're so focused on, I have to get this right. I have to do this clinical exam maneuver correctly. I wanna you know, pass by OSCE, which that's where the standardized patients come into its objective clinical structure exam, right? But then as they continue to do it, they become more comfortable with it. And then they can start honing those communication skills and say, hey, you know, how is whatever symptom they have, how is that affecting your quality of life? Is it affecting your day to day? You know, and, and, and ask those questions and really build trust. Because at the end of the day, and I know any physician would agree with me, if you don't build trust and a good rapport with your patient, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have, they will not trust you to improve to do the plan that you have for them, right? To take that medication, to go get that MRI, right? So that's what I work with, work on with my students every week as part of the coordinator of the program. Yeah. I worked at an academic medical center and saw some of these sessions. And the other thing that was really cool about it is that after the set exam or, you know, scenario is completed, the standardized patients can give a little feedback and say, you know, this was good, but I noticed you never made eye contact with me or... I laid out a pretty big, you know, issue there and there was no follow-up, that sort of thing. So that's that's kind of a nice aspect to it. Yes, exactly. And 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 they get feedback, both written and verbal feedback at different times. And the students love it. I mean, this is what they really want feedback on because they always get feedback from faculty on that other aspect, right? The clinical skills, both in the lab and at part of the Zosky. But they really do enjoy that because it's something they want to improve upon for sure. And I think, you know, I give the students the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, a lot of my my colleagues say, you know, I act as a champion for the students, and and I, and I really do because, and I don't know, it's because I'm I'm maybe closer to them in their training and and how, and I've had experience as a student working with standardized patients, but it's not, in my opinion, a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion when, for example, students in a clinical encounter and maybe the standardized patient script called for saying, 
yeah, when when asking about the family history, for example, oh, you know, my mother passed away a few years ago. And let's say a student said, okay, what about your father? Right. It didn't really <laughs> right give that like empathy. It's not, in my opinion, at all, and I'll never believe it's a lack of empathy or lack of compassion. You have to understand it's we can only simulate a clinical scenario so much. In real life, you don't have a overhead prompt saying two minutes remaining. Yeah. You don't have, you know what I mean? You don't have like, right. now I have to leave and go do this test or some evaluation or some sort of soap note that's going to be graded. You know what I mean? It's it's a different environment. It's very much a test atmosphere and they get locked into that. So they forget almost to display that normal empathy and compassion that they do have. And that's what I try to get out of them. And and they the, the improvement from first year to second year is, you know, it's 180 degrees. It's 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 remarkable how they improve it. It's it's great to watch. Yeah, no, it must be. I'm also wondering now because there's so much talk about AI and the role it's going to play. I mean, the idea that it's going to replace doctors, I think most people consider to be pretty ridiculous. But it can perhaps, uh, in its decision support with diagnostics and other things, maybe place less of a premium on the amount of knowledge you can memorize and how quickly you know, look it up, and more of a premium on interpersonal skills. I wonder what you think about that. Yes. I think, A, yes, in terms of getting that. Doctors are always always needing to access their databases to look, you know, things up. It's, no, you know, no doctor knows everything at all times, all right? We're human beings and the brain can only hold so much knowledge, right? So we always accessing our, our evidence-based resources. But it's funny you say that. I actually recently attended an Elsevier workshop on AI, just to, to, to plug that in. And I think that it's it's interesting because I agreed with it so much where AI, I think, in the interpersonal communication skills can play a great role in simulation, which standardized patients are under simulation, right? So to be able to enhance that simulated clinical scenario even further, where let's say you're using you know VR and you could be at the bedside and actually have a patient's family member there and the patient and, you know, kind of the chaos of maybe uh, that type of environment that you're not before you actually go into the clinical world. Right. You know, I think that can play such a role in helping students get that early clinical exposure. Right. In a safe environment. Right. Because it's not an actual clinical environment before they go out there. Right. I think it could you know, we have so much applicability for that. Yeah. And it's early days, so it'll surprise probably all of us in, in the ways it impacts things, but it's going to be a big help in a lot of ways, I think. You know, you've been involved in medical education. You mentioned the New York Institute of Technology and Turo, of course. At the national level, you remember the national faculty, the national board of osteopathic medical examiners. So I'm wondering with that lens, you know, wearing that hat, what are a couple of things that you think really need to change about medical education and where are you hoping to make an impact playing that role? Yeah, no, for sure. I think that we can dig deeper with regards to self-directed learning. We still have much of our curricula, you know, across the country have a lot of these, you know, mandatory sessions, right? Where students are expected to be somewhere and, and, and have to sit there and absorb a certain amount of material. And we have to understand that all students really learn differently, right? Some are more video-based or more visual-based. That's why myself and a lot of, as a student and as a professor, and a lot of my students love resources like Osmosis, right? Because they're visual learners. Others do need the text. Others just need to listen to some sort of audio. Others need to look at lecture slides. Everyone learns differently, right? 
So I think across the board, across the country, we need to be implementing more flipped classroom and digging even deeper into self-directed learning and allow our students to direct their learning. And not only in, in terms of how they absorb the material, but also in what manner, right? So not just being in the classroom or not having that option, but also giving them the, all the resources. We, we as faculty vetting those resources, making sure they're evidence-based and then saying, hey, now you have it. Audio resources, video resources, text at your disposal that we know are evidence-based, go and use them as you see fit. As long as, in my opinion, as long as you learn the material, that's the most important thing. You know, we can't expect everyone to learn the same. And I think kind of secondarily, I think we could do much better in making a lot of our sessions more interdisciplinary. So what I mean by that is having a clinician and a basic scientist or a clinician and a pharmacologist, having that there, because for example, you know, I was just talking to a few students about it. When I was a student, I struggled with pharmacology and that was because we learned it in isolation. These are all the medications you need to learn, now learn them. And a lot of that is remote memorization. It really grasped, I really grasped it when I was a resident. And now I'm saying, okay, now in this clinical scenario, now I'm learning about these medications and then it's stuck in my brain, right? So why not start that now from day one, have a clinician there, a pharmacologist and say, okay, now, you know, we'll go into these medications at, on the background of this clinical, you know, scenario that you just learned, right? We need to be more interdisciplinary working together. The self-directed piece, how does that look when it's working really well? I think it looks well in terms of really keeping, again, the classroom sessions optional, but also the resources, really a vast array of resources that are, again, they're evidence-based. We've vetted them. So the students have access to them though, right? And you know, really, we have to d dig deeper into what are the resources that are out there. Because I think there's a lot of institutions don't know about a lot of these resources. And then allow the exams to tell the students, okay, I need to kind of readjust here. Not us, right? Because we're, we can't assume, again, that the students all learn the same, right? And just say, you need to do this. Because I know if you do A and B, then C, meaning you're going to do amazing, right? On your test. We can't assume that. Let them determine those two. And if they struggle on exam, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Readjust. And we as faculty serve as mentors and guides to guide them and say, okay, what did you do for this exam? Okay, how can we readjust? You know, work with them as opposed to kind of giving them these expectations that we know everything you need to do to be successful. We have to allow the student to determine that. That's life, really. Mm. Really a more of a partnership model in learning. Exactly right. Yeah, big shift. So I know you have an interest in the mental health challenges facing healthcare providers. Love to learn from you what that's rooted in and have you tell us what you're seeing and hearing among your students and, and colleagues these days in that regard. Definitely. Yeah, this has been a growing passion of mine, especially of recent. You know, I've given a talk at my institution here in Middletown, also at our Harlem campus. I'm going to be speaking at our Montana campus as well later in the month. It's rooted in my own personal struggles, actually, with anxiety and depression. You know, I was a first-year training resident when COVID-19 arrived here in the U.S. in 2020. And, you know, I, I witnessed a lot of suffering on a daily basis. You know, I was part of the team that responded to RRTs or rapid response teams. You know, those are teams that respond to changes in a patient's clinical status. And, you know, 16 hours a day, we were every half hour, hour, we were responding to emergencies in the hospital. 
you know, seeing patients in their 30s and their 40s passing away from COVID-19. I was calling their loved ones to tell them that they loved them because they couldn't do it themselves. I was holding their my patients' hands when they were passing away because their families couldn't come into the hospital. You know, this was every day for months on end. And I think I, I witnessed all of this, but I really never processed any of it. And then soon after that, unfortunately, I lost my mother suddenly to what we found out to be lung cancer. So a lot of this happened. I had to go right back to work. You know, we were still in the thick of COVID. I don't think I really ever fully grieved her loss at the time, unfortunately. And I think I still kind of am now. And once I graduated residency, I, I suffered severe anxiety and panic. You know, I changed jobs thinking that it was the job itself was not, of course. And, you know, got to a point where I had to go to the emergency room at some point because the panic, I thought, well, is this my heart or is this a panic attack? I really don't know. And I, so I went to the emergency room, wound up being everything normal. And I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And, you know, I felt a lot of shame as if, you know, I couldn't live up to that five-year-old expectation that we talked about. And, you know, I, I shuddered away from my son. I shuddered away from my wife. I was in, you know, I, I, I felt ashamed to be me. And one day, finally, I, I, you know, I mustered up the courage to say, you know, I really need to get help if not for my, for me, but for my son and my wife. And I did. And, and I, you know, I saw my primary care doctor, you know, he started me on an antidepressant. I saw a psychologist every week. I put in a lot of hours and really, you know, worked on me and tried to figure out what was going on. And, you know, I came out so much better for it. You know, I learned that I kind of tied my identity with being a doctor. And when that came into question, so did, you know, me, you know, as like a person, you know, and I think that was a part of it for sure. And, you know, that's why, you know, I will tell all your viewers that, you know, those in the healthcare profession, being a doctor, being a nurse, being a PA, whatever profession you have in the healthcare field, it's not who you are. It's what you do. Because if you pair that with your identity, and if that ever were to come into question, it, it could be detrimental really to, to your health. And another part of it is that shame that I experienced goes into a lot of the stigma and mental health. And that kind of goes to your second question. And, and I'll talk about that too, but the stigma that exists is that as healthcare providers, we have to feel that we're afraid to speak up when these things happen because it's seen as a weakness and we might lose our careers. But just as much as we are healthcare professionals, we're human beings. Right. So it's part of the human experience to suffer, to grieve, to lose. Right. And and to experience the effects of that, which can be anxiety and depression. And so to expect that we wouldn't have that right, happen to us, you know, is it's 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 unfair. It's naive, really, because we're just as human as anyone else. So, you know, I would tell anyone, you know, we're human. It is part of the human experience get the help that you need. It is not a weakness. And rather, it'll be the strongest thing you ever do to get the help that you need. There's a you know common phrase about you have to be healthy yourself to be able to help other people and not couldn't possibly be more true than in the healthcare profession, right? That's exactly right. I mean, for medical students to be able to take those high stakes exams and for medical professionals to be able to take care of patients, you got to take care of yourself first, right? Like in the airplane, when the oxygen mask comes down, they tell you to put yours on first before you put someone else's on, right? So you got to help yourself before you can help others, right? You have to be your best self, right? And get that healing that you need. So, you know, what I'm hearing, you know, kind of in my, in my air profession and my, among my colleagues is that, you know, unfortunately, the stigma very much still exists. I will tell you that many organizations such the as such as the NBOME are doing a lot to try to promote wellness. We just have a long way to go in terms of, you know, professionals such as myself speaking up 
And I think that's the way we combat the stigma is continuing to speak up and share our stories, normalize the human experience for healthcare professionals. Well, I should thank you for speaking up and sharing all that with us. And I'm sorry to hear about that incredibly challenging period you went through. Thank you. On the stigma thing, I'm just wondering, so what are some things you think might work? I mean, what would have gotten through to you, I guess, is another way, if you can put yourself back in those days. Was there anybody trying to say to you, hey, you know, you don't have to be a tough guy here. It's okay to ask for help. And what would you have said to that? Yeah. You know, unfortunately, I didn't have much support in terms of in the, in my kind of like work and healthcare field and, and that in my, in my personal life, I had a tremendous support. You know, my wife, you know, my, my very close, my very close brother of mine and, you know, sister-in-law, I mean, they, you know, for sure, you know, were very, very much there for me in my darkest moments. But in terms of someone from my, you know, the, the, the industry that I work in saying, Hey, you know, to be able to relate, right. And say, Hey, it's okay. Even though you're a doctor that you're going through this, I didn't have that. Right. So what I would tell myself now is again, what I just said, it's okay that you're going through this. Yes, you're a doctor, but you're a human being. Look at everything you just went through over the last three years. And it's, it's actually very much what my psychologist told me. Look at everything you just experienced. It, it's, you, you know, you have to kind of give yourself a little bit of credit here that now you're standing here today being able to talk about it, that you made the decision to get the help that you need, right? So at that time, I was being told you can do this, but not from the not from those I could relate to in terms of my feelings. Not from colleagues. Not from colleagues, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I was too afraid to even speak up in that arena, right? So it's hard. So the more we speak up and normalize it, the more that we can and share these stories amongst colleagues, then our colleagues will feel more empowered to get the help that they need. Sure. What about medical educators? I mean, is this being formalized in any way into med school curriculums? You know, how can you help this next generation of providers you know, get into a different situation. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's formalized into the curriculum. You know, I again, I myself have, have given a talk here at our, our institution here at Torocom in Middletown. And, you know, I've been reaching out and trying to give more and more talks to to other institutions. And, and you know, for example, I just spoke at the Council of Osteopathic Student Government Presidents, and, and I'm trying to speak up more and more. I'm just trying to reach as many students as I can, but I think as medical educators, this should become formalized as part of the curriculum, for sure, because you know, every medical institution has, you know, clinicians teaching their students. And so if the students can relate to the clinician faculty, right, that they look up to and respect so much, have that person tell them, hey, it's okay if you're going through this as someone who they're hoping to become like, right, in that field, which is what my students have told me and say, hey, for someone that I want to be in your shoes one day and you're telling me it's okay for me to feel this way, this needs to be across the board nationally and really globally. You need that person in, in that industry, right? That, that, you know, to say, Hey, you could, you're going to become a doctor one day. And if you go through this, it's okay. Cause I went through this and where I have colleagues have gone through this, et cetera, right. To look the person you're looking up to have gone through what you're going through right now. Yeah. No, the role modeling is, is very powerful, obviously. Yeah. So as you know, we're a teaching company. We love to fill knowledge gaps. Is there a video, a course where you'd say osmosis? I would love it if you guys could address this issue and it may be related to medicine and what we've been talking about, or it might be something completely different. 
Well, I got to say, I, osmosis is phenomenal. I'll just put that in there. Not just because I'm here on the podcast, but I used it as a student myself and I, and I, and I loved it, but I, it's funny when I, you know, I, I, I looked through, you know, your, your series and catalog recently. One thing I might say is, you know, cause you have many, several wonderful series, but if you could have a series on guiding students through maybe study habits, board study habits, or something along those lines and how to kind of maneuver going through their, you know, their preclinical years, but also introducing, you know, studying for the boards and how to kind of fit that in and, and using their resources appropriately for that. I think that'd be a wonderful, a wonderful series to introduce something along those lines. Yeah, no. And because obviously the test taking is such a huge, huge part of the experience, you know? Yes, definitely. Even though step one's gone pass fail, I think step two. What's going? Is, is is there any talk about that on the with Comlex going pass fail? Level one is yeah yeah. Oh, it is okay. Yeah, like step one. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Again, another reason to go back to school, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Though it's never going to happen. We have a lot of students and early healthcare professionals in our audience. You're around students all the time, obviously. What's your go-to advice about them? heading out into the world and creating a career in these very challenging, interesting times. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, don't become a cog in the wheel, meaning don't feel stuck in any career path, right? The great thing, and I think the beautiful thing about the healthcare field is your ability to pivot, right? Because you've learned so much to get this degree. There's so many avenues to be able to pivot, whether to be into academia, business, entrepreneurial, what have you, right? There's so many ways that you can pivot in medicine. I think it's phenomenal. And and two, to to remind yourself to remind yourself why you're why you're doing what you're doing, but also make sure that you're happy doing it, right? So sit there and say, okay, this is what I've gone through. This is where I'm going. Am I happy on this path? Am I enjoying this? Right. And you can be happy in medicine. It's not up to say, oh, well, it's just stressful and you got to stress your way through it. Like, no, you should truly enjoy whatever if you're going to spend this many amount of hours doing something as a career make sure you enjoy it right so i would say make sure you enjoy what you're doing be flexible adaptable and know that you can pivot into whatever career you think you you have a passion for for me it was academics and and i i couldn't be happier wonderful advice a great place to wrap up the discussion i want to thank you so much dr Fody, for being with us today and more importantly for all the work you're doing there to educate the next generation of healthcare providers of course. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm Michael Caris. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember, as always, to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.